All right. Well, if you want to turn those Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, we will stand and we're going to read verses 12 through 17 together. I don't know how many of you have ever had little kids, but uh, I was getting my Bible out this week and just wanted to spend time rereading 1 Timothy and was really excited to just get to the, the paper and leatherback, you know. Uh, version of it and get my pen out and do some circling and underlining and um, all of chapter one was ripped out of it (laughs) makes it very difficult to preach from actually Um, actually so we're going to chapter two today no I I cracked it open on my phone here so all I need to do is read it I don't need to update my So uh, let's stand together and I'll read it and we'll just bow our heart before the word. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Looking at this section, my heart is really drawn to uh, verses 15 and 16, though we will look at the whole, but in the sentence of verse 15, there's a single sentence that has been used to encourage countless souls on their way to the Lord Jesus Christ. It stood as a front piece to the English Reformation uh, in the 1500s because of its effect upon one of the pastor preachers, Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney was an early Reformation martyr. He was known as Little Bilney, and why not, right? Due to his small stature, he was born in 1495 and had a scholarly bent. So he studied law at Cambridge University. He became a fellow of Trinity Hall in 1520, but neither study nor ordination into the ministry brought him any peace in his heart. Then he began to read the Latin translation of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and as Bilney described it, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy 1, it is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one 
sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart. Goes on to say, before, uh, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and a quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. I like that. My bruised bones leapt for joy. It's really a quote from David in Psalm 51. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant to me than the honey of the honeycomb. Bilney immediately became a central figure in the group of the English reformers and these theologians who would meet at a place called the White House and they would plan uh, the Reformation movement and breaking away from uh, just religion and getting back to the scripture and to the grace through faith that the gospel is the grace of God. Uh, there he was at Cambridge, this Bilney, and he was arrested in 1527 because of his involvement. He was forced to recant the preaching of the gospel of grace. He couldn't handle it for much longer and went back to preaching in 1531 where he was burned at the stake eventually. He would have a convert, a very famous convert, uh, inspired by Bilney's courage he loved Bilney's sermons. He called Bilney St. Bilney. His name was Latimer. And Latimer also died at the stake in 1555. These men, all especially loving Paul's words here in 1 Timothy 1, these words that Christ Jesus came into the world for this reason, to save sinners. To save sinners. And I pray that this morning, that phrase, that sentence would cause your bruised bones to leap for joy. In verse 12, Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful and he put me into the ministry. There's this thanksgiving in Paul's heart. And the thanksgiving really comes from the sentences following. He, he's thankful, like he's, he's going to share his testimony with us. And we're going to see why he's so thankful that he's found in this place of serving the Lord Jesus. And being a servant of the Lord Jesus comes from the enablement of God. It comes from the working of God. It comes from the calling of God. Since I was young and involved in ministry, even since I was about 15 years old, this phrase has stuck with me, that with God's commandments always come his enablements. Whatever God is calling you to do, he is going to enable you to be able to do that. We're going to know even more why this is such a big deal for Paul due to his testimony. But even here in verse 12, he says, wow, the, the sovereignty of the Lord and his involvement in calling me into ministry. There's this sovereign aspect where he saw me, he counted me and considered me faithful and he enabled me to do the work of the ministry. Verse 13 says... And here's why he's thankful. He's, he's going to be pondering, why is this such a big deal? Why is he thankful about this? Why, why is it a big deal that God considered Paul faithful for the work of the ministry? Because of his testimony. Look at verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer. I was formerly a blasphemer. A persecutor. 
and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Wow, I thank the Lord that he's enabled me. He's counted me faithful. He's put me into the ministry. Even though I've got a past. Even though I've done some stuff. And he lists this list of sins that one guy I was reading called it the trinity of sins in Paul's life. These are big three things that come to him when he thinks of his testimony. I was a blasphemer in my past. I was a blasphemer. Before, before you know me now as Paul the Apostle, I was Saul the tormentor, Saul the blasphemer. I was a model Jew, and, and yet I was a slanderer at the same time. A slanderer, a persecutor. In some of Paul's other writings, like in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be counted or called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I was a persecutor. I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. I've seen the risen Jesus. He's put this ministry on me. He sent me out into the world to preach the gospel. But man, I'm the least of all of them. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Man, I am thankful to the Lord. I think of God's grace because I was a guy that was actually persecuting the church of God. The word persecute speaks of hunting down. I was hunting down the church of God. In Galatians, he says, you've heard of my former conduct. You've heard of my past. Anyone here have a past? You've heard of my past. You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism. And normally we would think of if anyone else was saying that, like, you've heard of my conduct in Judaism. Oh, yes, yes. You, you had a yarmulke and the curly Q sideburns. And, you know, uh, you, know you read the, the Torah regularly. And, wow, what conduct? That's not what he's talking about. He has even more of a sordid past than that. He says, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. Here was my conduct. I hunted down the church. Think of the world watch list right now. Think of the top 10 in this world and how Christians are being persecuted today. If there's a way we could measure it. And we try to, you know, we've got North Korea up at the number one, and we pray for North Korea regularly. We pray for uh, uh, Syria. We pray for Iraq and Iran and, and the list. We've been praying through this list. And, and Paul says, you can even measure how I was hunting down these Christians. It was beyond measure how I persecuted them. Philippians says, concerning zeal, I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. So zealous that I persecuted the church. So I was a blasphemer. I was a slanderer. I was a persecutor. Here it says, I was an insolent man. An insolent man. When I first read that, that didn't mean much to me. Maybe it didn't much for you. Like, let's move on to the next set of verses here, Roar. You know, think of what this means. Insolent man means I was a violent insulter. Anybody go to school and you had a bully, or you were the bully? <laughs> Let's be honest, most of you were the bullies. <laughs> and you had the violent insulter in your life? The violent insulter, if you are new, uh, new American Standard Bible, says a violent aggressor. I just remember seventh grade, Andy Brendamore, 
the coolest kid in the school, most athletic. I was probably second, you know. Um, <laughs> and I just remember apparently in the next period when he would come into the classroom that I, you know, uh, he had my desk after I left and apparently he didn't like that I didn't push my chair in after uh, I left every day. And I just remember getting up and he came in after and just pushed me up against the wall and slammed the chair in. Just like, do you ever leave your chair untucked or whatever you do? <laughs> See, I don't even know what you call it. Uh, I'm going to, I was like, So then I saw his bet, and we met in the alleyway after school and, and dealt with it. No, we didn't. Um, I pushed the chair in for the rest of my life. Um, but Saul was a violent insulter, an aggressor, violently arrogant. He was capable of the most insulting, violent, humiliating treatment with the ones he disagreed with. That's what that violent, insolent man speaks of. Capable of the most insulting, violent, humiliating treatment of the ones he disagreed with. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. When I was flying back from Nepal, from China to Vancouver, British Columbia, I uh, sat next to a man who was from Bangladesh, but lived in Canada now. Uh, he was a journalist, a very well-known journalist in Bangladesh, and, and it turns out he, he came from a father who was the most well-known journalist, journalist in Bangladesh. Uh, and back in the 60s, Pakistan had such an influence on uh, the Bangladeshis, I suppose is how you would say that. Not at all. Uh, Pakistan was so involved and had such a Muslim presence that, that the Hindus and the, and the Buddhists and, of course, the Christians were persecuted by the Muslims. And so there was a civil war in Bangladesh. And uh, he says that he was probably 16 years old at the time, and he served as a spy in the resistance against the Pakistani army. Uh, his older brother was in the army in the civil war against the Pakistanis. And his father would write literature about the freedom that was needed from the, from the Pakistanis. And, and uh, he says that when he was 15 years old, uh, the army came in the middle of the night. His dad's doctor was with them. And his dad's doctor pointed at his dad and said, that's him right there. And, uh, and so the army came in. They grabbed his dad, drug him out uh, into the city, and killed him. And he never saw his dad again. And so it was just amazing to hear this man's story. He's just sitting right next to me on the plane. And as I read of, of uh, Saul of Tarsus, that was, that was his MO. Just going in the middle of the night, dragging out Christians and giving the green light for putting them to death or putting them in prison. In Acts chapter 9 verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So the demeanor of Saul in, in Paul's former life, remember he's Paul now, he's Saul then, uh, was one of seething breathing of threats against Christians. We really don't know what that's like here in America. We've not experienced that. Seething breathing threats. A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, says that threatening and slander, uh, rather, Threatening and slaughter 
had come to be the very breath that Saul breathed, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. So that's, that's Saul. That's his testimony. That's his conduct. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. In Acts chapter 26, verse 9, I'm um, not sure. Yeah, there we go. We got it up there now. Uh, he says in his testimony, so he's, he's a Christian now. He's Paul the Apostle. He's witnessing to uh, the rulers later on in his ministry. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. So you've heard stories about Christians, you know, being brought to a place of execution, and just before the trigger is pulled or the stake is lit, they're given a chance to to turn away from Jesus and to denounce Christ. And he says, I was the one with the flame to the stake. I was the one, you know, with the sword up against the neck. I was the one that compelled them to blaspheme and to give up their faith in Jesus. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Later on, we see that uh, in his testimony, he was traveling to Damascus when the Lord met him in a big, big bright light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was the Lord Jesus speaking to Saul there on the road to Damascus. But he was on the way to Damascus, about 150 miles away, to persecute Christians. So think of what we know in histories like this. Think of even in World War II and the Auschwitz sites that we've seen through pictures and videos and schooling. Um, you know, the, the persecution and the genocide against the Jews that Nazi Germany did. This is the type of thing that Saul of Tarsus was involved in prior to his Damascus Road experience. Saul's testimony isn't that he was a Sunday school kid who grew up in church and wanted to be an apostle his whole life. That's not his testimony. His testimony was that he was the number one aggressor against Christians in the early church period, probably of all time. It's been said he was a calloused, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer, hell-bent on a full-scale inquisition. And I, I love the World War II movies, and most of them, you know, if there's ever any, like, sights of the German army in the midst of it, there's that one guy who's like the head of the SS, you know, um, or the Gestapo police. And he's just, he's got a mission to go into, you know, to go into the woods and hunt down these Jews. To go into the houses and to find the, the attics, you know, where the Jews are hiding. And it's just, you know, if you've seen those movies, you know, he's, he's the guy with the, the high collar and just the, the black German Nazi uniform on. That he's just, just hell bent on destroying a people group. And that was Saul of Tarsus. But there's this incredible phrase. There's these incredible phrases that will follow. And it begins with, but I obtained mercy. He's going to use the word mercy twice in verse 13 and in verse 16. 
I obtained mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. So if you were the head of the SS henchmen in World War II and you were caught, what would you deserve? That's Saul of Tarsus. He didn't get what he deserved. And he explains a little bit here, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He kind of is saying here, I didn't know, or I failed to really understand. Now you kind of get the feeling as you read this that maybe Paul's trying to weasel out of what he did. Have you ever read that? Yet I received mercy because I didn't really know what I was doing. That's not what he's saying there. He's simply acknowledging as a Jew who understands the law and why he would be guilty and the righteous judgments of God, he's acknowledging the way things work before God. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we read about the high priest going and making atonement once a year, and it wasn't without blood, it was with blood, and it says he would offer for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. There's a level of sin that's ignorance. And there was atonement needed for those sins. You even remember Jesus looking down from the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. They're ignorance. He didn't have a clear-eyed awareness to the truth and just blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He was culpable. He was guilty. He was blameworthy. Two different books that I read on this verse use that word culpable. It's a new word for me, so I had to write it down. Uh, it means guilty, worthy of blame. Uh, one man said, Paul's not saying I'm without guilt. My ignorance and my unbelief is culpable. I'm guilty for my unbelief, but it's not unpardonable. All right? He says, I receive mercy because what I was doing isn't unpardonable before the Lord. Another guy, Chapel, says, on one level, Paul knew exactly what he'd been doing. It was with great forethought that he was going out and killing Christians. On the other level, he was not culpable because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Jesus himself says in John 16, 1 through 3, These things I've spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they've not known the Father nor me. So Jesus prophesied of the Saul of Tarsus's and the high priest. This, this time's coming when, when Saul is going to go out there and he is going to think he's obedient to the Lord and doing what he's doing. But he's ignorant in that. In the book of Romans, Paul himself would write, I bear witness to all of those Jews that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're zealous. They're just zealously wrong. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 31, 
Paul is preaching to the Athenians. He's in Greece. And he's just disgusted by all of the idols that he sees everywhere. All of the idolatry. And just everywhere you turn, there's an idol and a shrine. And he begins preaching to the Athenians. And he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of the heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as if he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. He's determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devisings. Now listen to this. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You know, the Lord was working through a time of ignorance. But that time of ignorance is over. He is sending out now the preachers into the world to confront people with their sin through the preaching of the gospel, which tells the bad news that you are a sinner and you are accountable for your sin and you will be judged for your sin. But there's good news. God has made a way to be saved from your sin by coming himself in the flesh and dwelling among men and never sinning and yet being betrayed and delivered up to be murdered. And while he's murdered and executed, his pure, sinless, spotless blood poured down that Roman cross so that anyone who would believe in him would have propitiation for their sins, would have their sins washed away, and the wrath of God against their sins would be atoned for and absorbed by what Jesus did there at the cross. You might have come in this door today ignorant of what you've done, but you were just told you've sinned and you've fallen short of the righteousness of God. Sorry, this time of ignorance God's overlooked. You will not stand before the throne of God and say, I didn't know. He has appointed a day that he will judge you and every other man and woman on the earth. And the only thing that will matter in your defense is what has Jesus done for you? Have you received the work of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross when he substituted himself in your place? Where he shed his pure blood so that your sins could be washed away by that blood. What have you done with that? Have you received that atonement by trusting in that? By trusting in his plan? Or have you pushed that atonement away and said, I'm just going to go ahead and do it my way and we'll just see how it goes and sorts out in the end. That's a bad idea. Don't do it. This time of ignorance is over. And now he calls all men and women, equal opportunity here, he calls all men and women to 
repent. And the beautiful thing is you can be put in the same place as Saul, where you would obtain mercy. And not only obtain mercy, but look in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So not only is God a God of mercy, which is not getting what you do deserve, but he is a God of grace and grace that is exceedingly abundant. Grace is a little bit different than mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You see the difference? Mercy, not getting what you deserve, which is judgment and the wrath of God upon you and your sins. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It's a gift. It's the riches of God at Christ's expense. I love that phrase here. Upon Paul went the grace of our Lord Jesus exceedingly abundant. It speaks of abounding grace. Grace that's more than enough. If you've got the ESV, your version says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Or the NIV, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Just abundant, pouring out, bubbling up over exceedingly and abundantly. It's the Greek word hooperpleneas. And it speaks of unquenchable outpouring of God's goodness and his riches upon you. Exceedingly abundant. The book of James says, He gives more grace. He gives more grace. Think of that. You are a sinner who's guilty and worthy of hell and the wrath of God being poured out upon you. You're in the same camp of Saul with his testimony. And yet through what Jesus has done, there is mercy for your sin and your rebellion. And then there's also grace, which is good gifts towards you. Because of what Jesus has done. In Romans chapter 5 verse 20, Paul says, Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Or where sin abounded, grace super abounded. I've been shown mercy and I've been shown abundant grace. Mercy and grace. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin literally translates 13 and 16, this mercy, I was be-mercied. I was be-mercied. I was begraced. Have you been be-mercied? Has the mercy of God been put upon you because of what Jesus has done? Have you received that mercy? Have you received that grace? That last phrase in verse 14, with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to get into it much, but multiple times in 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul will couple the phrases faith and love, or the words faith and love, faith and love, faith and love. It's an important thing that the Holy Spirit works in Christians is faith and love. We're moving right along into verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. 
So a faithful saying, before they had the word of God written out in the New Testament writings, uh, they had these faithful sayings or these summaries of truth uh, that they, would, they were easily quotable. Uh, the apostles would speak them out. They were reliable, believable messages and gospel speakings. They were uh, deserving approval. And Paul would give a lot of faithful sayings in these uh, pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. This is a faithful saying. And then here it is. Here's the faithful saying, worthy of trust, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a faithful saying. You want to start memorizing scripture? This would be a great place to start because here is a faithful saying. Here's a saying you can't go wrong and just implanting in your heart. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a Christmas message in and of itself. We may do that uh, there for Christmas this year. Come back to 1 Timothy. But that Jesus came and was sent into the world for this purpose. I hope you maybe you underlined it in your Bible this morning. To save sinners or to heal sinners. Let's look at a couple of Old Testament passages here. And by the way, while, while we're looking at it, um, it's a rhetorical question, so you don't have to raise your hand. But are there any sinners in the room? No, it was a rhetorical question. Don't answer, okay? Right, of course. Like, that question is just like, oh, yeah, I knows what I've dids, right? I'm a sinner. And so this is good news to the Rory Rogerses of the group. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved or I need to be healed of my sin. Look at this messianic passage of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 5. This is speaking of Jesus about a thousand years before he came. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. How are we healed of our sin? How are we saved of our sin? Well, centuries earlier, Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah who would come. And he would come, not with great pomp and circumstance, but he would come lowly as a guy that if you were to just look at him, Isaiah 53 says, there wouldn't be no, nothing beautiful about him. That That's why you would follow. Like, oh man, he is a good looking man. I can follow a guy that looks like that. He was just a normal Joe, a normal guy. No offense, Joe, but let's be honest. You're wearing muck boots here with cow manure all over him. I mean, maybe Jesus looked like you is all I'm saying. I'm joking. Okay, never mind. He was a normal, I was going to say Fred, but we have one of those here. You pick a name. He was normal, okay? He had no form or comeliness that if we were to look at him, we would desire him. How are we healed by this guy? How are we saved by this guy? Isaiah 53, he was wounded, he was bruised, he took chastisement upon him, and he took stripes upon him. This dealt with our transgressions, this dealt with our iniquities, this brought peace, and it brought healing. So you know you're a sinner today. Have you had your sins dealt with once and for all? Have you had your iniquities 
washed away so that you are as pure as snow? Do you have peace in your heart knowing that you are right with God? And those stripes that Jesus took upon his back by the Roman scourging whip, have you been healed by the whippings that he took upon his back? In Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, Jesus would actually read this later on in Luke chapter 4, and he would stand up in the midst of a Nazareth congregation, synagogue, and he would unroll the scroll. He would find this spot in Isaiah 61. He would read it, and he would say this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Jesus, as he would read Isaiah 61 from the scroll, he would uh, set the book down, he would go to his seat. It says, all eyes are on him in the congregation. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I just fulfilled this. I am here to heal sinners. I am here to preach the good news. I am here to heal the brokenhearted. Are you captive by sin? I'm here to proclaim liberty to you. Are you in the prisons of sin and darkness? Those chains can be broken today. Are you mourning? I want to bring joy today. And when he came, he was given a name by an angel, and his name is Jesus and the angel says in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Anybody here a sinner? The answer for healing and saving is in Jesus. He says, this is a faithful saying. That Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And then he adds this little bit to the end in verse 15. Of whom I am the chief. I'm the chief sinner. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. I'm telling you, I was the worst sinner of them all. The prominent sinner of all time. I was numero uno. El sinero. Okay? I'm the chief of sin. And I hope that there's some in this room that would say, no, 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 Paul. That title belongs to me. Because when we are at the foot of the cross and we know our sin and the mercy and grace that's been given to wash us clean and give us the status of righteous and justified, we would say, no, no, Saul of Tarsus. Rory Rogers, chief of sinners. When we understand the grace of God towards sinners, we know his mercy towards us. It brings great humility. Some have called this and, and kind of made fun of Paul for writing this, the chief of sinners. They've called it 
morbid introspection, false humility. That is absolutely not the case. Saul is simply recognizing the facts of the matter. He doesn't think of himself more highly than he ought. He knows the reality of the sins that he's done. Saul was, as Chapel says, a man who provided the prototypes for the Inquisition. A master of religious thuggery. A torquemada. And God's example of grace in him shows that there's hope for us all. Look at verse 16. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. God was merciful to me and gracious to me. And he did this with great purpose so that for me, I would become an example to the rest of the world that's going to hear the gospel for the next 2,000 years so far, that anyone who's a sinner can look at the Saul of Tarsus and say, if God is able to forgive Saul and put him into the ministry to be useful for him, then he's able to save me. He's able to save all of us. What an exciting prototype we have in the person of Saul or Paul. I read this story last night as I was going to bed. In 1918, in Tokyo, a man named Tochiki Ishii was hung for murder. I've got a, a picture of him here. He had been sent to prison more than 20 times. He was as tough as men get. In response to his hatred and violence, on one occasion, after attacking a prison guard, he was bound and gagged and hung from the ceiling so that his toes barely reached the ground. Before receiving his death sentence, he received a New Testament sent by two Christian missionaries, Miss West and Miss McDonald resulting in the notorious criminals coming to know Christ. When Tokichi was sentenced to death, he accepted that as the fair, I quote, the fair impartial judgment of God. During a visit, Miss West directed him to read 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through, 20, uh, 8 through 10, which deals with suffering. There, Mr. Ishii noted, among other things, the line, quote, poor yet making many rich. And he wrote this in his journal. This certainly does not apply to the evil life I led before I repented, but perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ, and so they may come to repent also. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. Tokichi died on the scaffold with great humility. His last words were, and I quote, My soul, purified today, returns to the city of God. God, through his grace, 
has reached a man who would call himself the most desperate villain who ever lived. Just as he had reached the chief of sinners about 1900 years earlier. And both of these men would say God's grace can reach anybody. This is why I've obtained mercy, Paul says. That in me, me first, Christ Jesus might show a whole lot of patience to the world. Look how much patience he's had with Saul of Tarsus. As a pattern of those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. I have... uh, large bookshelf in my basement was brought over from my office here in the church when we moved out my office for the for the kids and I've got commentaries and books on church history and you know all sorts of things and and I have one shelf though that's just devoted to kind of my my history shelf you know a lot of World War II books a lot of Civil War books Vietnam it's just kind of an interest I have and there's a book there that kind of belongs in between like the history and the Christian missionary shelf. (laughs) Like, what do I do with this one? It was a book that I was given by a woman. It it was a used book, and she used to go to our church here uh, called, it was called The Cross and the Swastika. The Cross and the Swastika. It was a tattered book when I got it, all dog-eared, and it's, it's even more tattered now that I've read through it. The Cross and the Swastika. This book tells the story of the aftermath of the war in Europe during World War II. Hitler has killed himself by this point, but most of the Nazi leaders are still alive and have been captured by the Allied forces. They now face trial under uh, four indictments. Number one, they were being party to a conspiracy to wage aggressive war. Secondly, they were... uh, being charged for crimes against peace. Thirdly, war crimes, which was wanton destruction and the mistreatment of POWs. And the fourth was crimes against humanity, inhumane treatment of civilians, extermination of hundreds of thousands of gypsies, as well as six million Jews. Seventeen men here would be facing trial and most likely execution for their crimes. Their future seemed dim. Enter in Henry Gorek, who was a United States Army chaplain and a bearer of the good news of the gospel. Gorek was assigned to bring spiritual hope and guidance to these men for over the course of a year of their trial, he was able to present clearly the good news of the gospel and peace to hopeless men as they were inmates. Garek wrote, These men must be told about the Savior bleeding, suffering, and dying on the cross for them. He wrote in his journal. One of the men that was up for trial was Fritz Sockel. He was the production in general for the allocation of labor dubbed the most harsh slave driver since the Egyptian pharaohs. Fritz Sockel would kneel down by his bed, imploring Gorek to read the scriptures and to pray with him. Gorek wrote, 
unafraid and unashamed, he prayed with me at his bedside, generously ending our prayer by saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then there was Field Marshal Keitel. He was the chief of high command of armed forces. Keitel would memorize numerous verses of scripture that spoke to God's mercy towards sinners. And Gorek writes, he made a fine choice of Bible reading, hymns, and prayers, and read them himself aloud. He was unashamed to kneel at his bed, and together with me made confession of his sins. On his knees and under deep emotional stress, he received the body and the blood of our Savior and the bread and the wine. With tears in his voice, he said, You have helped me more than you know. May Christ, my Savior, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. Albert Speer was Reich Minister for Armaments and War. He would use slave labor to produce arms. Two other men with him, one Balder von Schirach, was the Hitler Youth Leader and Gauleteer, or overbearing leader, of Vienna. And Hans Fritsch, who was the head of the broadcasting division of propaganda ministry, these three guys, together it's written, it touched my heart to see these three big men on their knees about to receive the Lord's Supper. I felt, for, I felt sure others' prayers were with me because it was not possible to win them to the foot of the cross without the intercession of God's people. I'm convinced God worked a change in their hearts through the word that I'd been reading and preaching to them and that they were ready, as every penitent is, to ask God's forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake. And Gorek would ask the three men, I now ask you before God, is this your sincere confession that you heartily repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God the Holy Ghost, henceforth to amend your sinful life, then declare so by saying yes. And with delight in his heart, the chaplain gave bread and wine to Fritsch, von Schirach, and Speer as they confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, saving them from their sins. Constantine von Neurath, was a former minister in 1932 through 1938, and he was the occupier of Czechoslovakia. He read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and saw that being born again was altogether the work of the Holy Spirit, involving personal repentance of the sins that separated him from God. He recognized in Ephesians that Christ paid the penalty of sin, and it was up to him to ask forgiveness and by faith receive Christ into his life. Gorek recalled, as we, bent, as we went along, he manifested genuine interest. This led to a crisis experience when the old baron admitted his need for salvation. Foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop would essentially be first in command after Hitler. Hermann Goring committed suicide via cyanide capsule just on the execution date. So this essentially brought von Ribbentrop to first in command. 
for nearly a year, von Ribbentrop had heard the chaplain proclaim Christ as the answer, talking of the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus, and explaining that faith is simply the channel through which God's grace is received. Ribbentrop could hold out no longer, seeking God's forgiveness and opening his heart to Christ, quote, one of the most heartening experiences was observing the slow and steady progress of Joachim von Ribbentrop, the diplomat, from cool indifference to a truly sincere Christian faith. Now, as sometimes does, this upset Frau Ribbentrop. That's Mrs. Ribbentrop, in case you don't speak German. And Gorek wrote, she certainly made it as difficult for me as she could and on her husband in every way. After the guilty verdict was given, the men were given a final chance to see their families. Gorek heard Ribbentrop plead with his wife that their children be kept in the church and be brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This statement coming from Ribbentrop is especially interesting to me because of the beginning of my work, I discovered that the whole family had withdrawn from the church. Perhaps uncharitably, I labeled Frau von Ribbentrop the most ungodly woman I'd ever met. I heard her husband plead with her, have the children baptized, sweetheart. Finally, she, she gave in, and I helped her arrange for the baptism of their two boys at the neighboring church. Fritz Sockel's wife would promise her husband that their children would stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this, quoting from the book when execution day came and Gorek said his final prayer with von Ribbentrop quote I heard him say that he put all his trust in the blood of the lamb that taketh away the sins of the world while yet in his cell he asked God to have mercy on his soul as Ribbentrop stood at the gallows Ribbentrop's final statement ended with God have mercy on my soul then he turned to Henry Gorek and said and my heart still warms when I think of it, I'll see you again. When we often think of the worst men in world history, we're thinking of these guys right here. These are right up there on the list. And Paul the Apostle would say, I'm the chief of all these guys. And if God can save me, he can save every one of these men and every one of these men and every one of these men, the Hitler's henchmen of the world, the Saddam Husseins or Osama bin Ladens, the Ayman al-Zuharis, the top dogs at Al-Qaeda following bin Laden. Uh, so, so now that would be the case. Abu Yaha, Al-Qaeda number two, Mullah Abar, the Taliban special leader and former head of the state of ISIS. These are men that are in need of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them of their sins. And as the worship team comes up, when we read and we hear of the chief of sinners being saved by the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus, we, like Paul, will break out in worship. In verse 17, So to the king of all the ages, the immortal, invisible, and only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Forever and ever, amen. You guys, as we have come here today, we've laid open the word, and we've seen the sins of another man. 
And in his confession of them, the Lord has used us to examine our own hearts and our own lives and our own sins. It was only a few verses earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul lists out the law. 1 Timothy chapter 1, my Bible's open to the wrong page because I'm missing that page. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. That we read that the law shows us our sin. The word of God, the Bible, shows us that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we enter in this faithful saying today. There is good news for every sinner in this room. Christ Jesus has come into the world for the purpose of saving sinners. Have you been saved today as you sit here at Calvary Chapel? Are you a saved man? Have you been healed of your sins? Having Christ's work wash you as white as snow, just as if you'd never sinned? Have your, has your conscience been cleansed? So that you can now serve the living God. Are you a saved woman in this place? You know your iniquities. If they were to be numbered. How could you stand before God? I plead with you today. Be reconciled to God. Be brought back into relationship with God. That can only be done through the work of Jesus. And just as a little child would receive a beautiful gift handed to them, today would you receive with childlike faith the beautiful packaged gift of the gospel. That the God who created you created you to be a worshiper of his and to go declare his glory in the world. Yet you rebelled against him, broke relationship with him, created a middle wall of separation against him. You were at war with him, trying to create some sort of goodness of your own. You only fell short time and time again. And while you were at war with God, while you were a sinner, Jesus Christ came and he died for you so that you could be healed. And as you place your trust in him, as you place your faith in him, as you believe on him, as you receive from him, this gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins will be placed into your accounts today just right where you're at with childlike faith receive that last night I was at a concert in Portland and I was 
there with our family, and I was sitting next to my little girl, Lainey, and she was a little grumpy. She was tired. She hadn't eaten a nutritious dinner, and she was being a bit of a bear to sit by, and I kind of picked her up and was holding her, and I was showing her the gift that her grandparents had gotten her, the food and the, the concert and this time of, you know, singing and worshiping Jesus, and, and I just began to kind of dance with her, and, and I began to, you know, grab her hands and clap her hands, and I kind of started putting a little boogie in her as we were there. And it was, just, it was just so great as a dad to just see her go from just kind of grumpy and tired and there was a little just sinfulness in her and flesh and, and she just began to clap and just enjoy. And you could just tell, she, tell she, she'd received what was happening there in that place. And just maybe you're here today, you come into this room and you come into this place and, and you're just a little just put off and you're just a little annoyed. You're just a little, I don't know, and maybe not, to, it sounds good. Sounds good, but maybe not today. And I would just pray for you today that, that you would just be like a little child. And you would just start receiving the gift that's given to you. And you would just start clapping the hands of your heart. And, and you would allow yourself to be excited about the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you. I just pray that the Lord would do that in you right now. And that right where you're at, you would receive what Jesus has done. And that you, you sinner, you man, you woman, you child, whoever you are, that where you're at today, you would look at the model that's in front of you today of Paul, every one of these German men, this, this Japanese man, and you would hear them cry out to you, hey, I knew my deep need for a savior. I was desperate for a savior to wash away my sins. You're in just as desperate case. Receive salvation and healing of sins that's in Jesus Christ. 